We'll come to a time in our service now, we're going to look at a passage from the Bible, we're going to talk about what it means, why this matters, and what we should do about it. So, would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 15, although our passage will not begin until 23, just to give us a bit of context. It's on page 475 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. If you have your own, just find Psalms and go write two books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes will be the next one. As you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge, as Kent said, I mean, this passage today especially is weird. It's, it's a weird passage. Um, one of the things about preaching through books, you encounter all kinds of stuff you probably wouldn't. Otherwise, if I was looking to preach on wisdom, I probably wouldn't go to this passage. This wouldn't be the first one I jumped to. And yet, here it is, and God's brought us here for a reason. So I think he's going to teach us something uh, incredible today. So if you found it, would you stand together with me? I'll read this passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 15. To give us some context, our passage begins at 23. Solomon writes this, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be overwicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. And here's where we'll be camping out today, starting at verse 23. Solomon says, All this I tested by wisdom. And I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things while I was still searching but not finding. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more, ask God's blessing as we head into this time in his word now. Living God, as we come to your word, we believe that each word you have written to us is a living word. It is a word written by your spirit and spoken by your spirit and written down by man. And so we have a trustworthy word in front of us, but we also have something that is relevant today that speaks to us today. It is not just some ancient document that we look back on. It speaks to us now, and I believe that you have a purpose in bringing this word to us today. I'm trusting you will work through the preparation of this past week, that you will speak specifically to hearts as you intended. God, you tell us in your word when you send it out, it doesn't return to you a void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. 
I ask now, eternal God, accomplish this purpose in each one of us, whatever that may be. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. When I was growing up, there were all kinds of different careers that I was determined to have. I I thought, for sure, I'm going to have this job. So I thought, uh, even as a young child, I thought I was going to be a firefighter. Uh, I was sure I was going to be a magician. And at one time, I even thought I would be an astronaut. I thought that that would be a good thing to pursue. Determined to have these careers. And one career in particular that I was quite desirous to have was I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a famous musician. I don't know if it's a rock star or something. I wanted to be a famous musician. And, and given the fact, I, I mean, I grew up in a musical family. I had, I don't know, decent success in things like choirs, school musicals, writing music, and stuff like that. It seemed like a relatively achievable goal. But the first time I remember being confronted with the reality that this might not be as achievable as I thought was when I was selected to, from my high school in Kamloops to be part of a provincial jazz choir down here in Vancouver. Twelve students from across the province selected to be part of this jazz choir here in Vancouver, and from the very first rehearsal, I realized I was way, way out of my league, like far out of my league. Uh, The other singers, they, they were all my age, basically, but they were just at a totally different level, totally different level when it came to musical experience, development, musical knowledge. It, it, was, it was scary. And I just thought, what, what am I doing here? I don't know if you've ever experienced a feeling like that yourself in whatever passion, area of passion you've pursued. It, it shows up particularly whenever we uh, move from a smaller pond into a much bigger pond. We often experience this phenomenon. Why does it happen? What's going on there? Why, why do we suddenly feel so all out of our depth? Isn't it because primarily we've, we've built a level of confidence in our ability up until that point, it's just been based on a different level of excellence. Here, it is excellent, but now in this much bigger pond, well, it's not excellent at all. Okay, so, so maybe you were the best singer in your church growing up. Maybe you were the smartest kid in your school. Maybe you were the strongest player on your team. That, that's great. How nice for you. But when you're tested by a bar that's just way higher than the one you've been clearing up until now, all of a sudden it can make any of our Olympic efforts start to look like sports did in elementary school. This is a different standard. We're continuing in this morning through this series through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Chasing After the Wind. And throughout the book, if you haven't been with us, Solomon has been testing this thesis that he began the whole book with, namely that everything, everything in this world that we see, that we feel, we touch, everything we see under the sun is like a mist. It's like breath on a cold day. You you can see it. It's there, but it's temporary. It's here for a moment and gone, and it's something you can't grasp a hold of. And the area of life under the sun that Solomon wants to deal with and focus on today in our passage is the area of wisdom. Wisdom. Now, a few things quickly that I want to just clear up, work through before we dig in here. First of all, the last time Solomon talked about wisdom around chapters 1 and 2 there, I know there was a bit of confusion among some of us because Solomon kept saying, oh, wisdom, that's just like a vapor. 
It's meaningless. And a lot of people will come to me after and say, well, does that, is that right? I mean, isn't wisdom a good thing? Isn't that something we're supposed to seek out? And the answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that you should seek out. You should follow after. The point Solomon was making there was that wisdom, although it is a good thing, it's not something, A, that makes us superior to other people, that we can use as a weapon to say, hey, I'm, I'm better than you because I have this wisdom. Nor does wisdom allow us to escape the same reality that the fool does, namely of our death. Wise or foolish, you don't, you don't, you don't get a get-out-of-death-free card because you're wise. You'll face the same reality. So to be clear, wisdom as we can know it under the sun, in our days here of life, it is something good. It's just not something we can find ultimate meaning and purpose in. We can only find that in the one who made us. But to complicate matters even more, now today in our passage, as we just read here, verse 23, if you look there, Solomon says he is testing wisdom by wisdom. Okay, what? Testing wisdom by wisdom. I, that doesn't seem to make sense at all. Like, like, how is that even possible? That's like saying, I'm going to solve this complicated math equation by math. Like, you, you, don't you need something different? Something uh, uh, higher, something more elevated, something other in order to test something else, to evaluate something else? And the answer is there. Yes. Again, that's exactly what you're, you need, and that's also exactly what Solomon is doing. He is using something else to test wisdom, because if you didn't know, at the very beginning of his reign, we're told Solomon was given a divine gift of wisdom. He was given a divine gift of wisdom from God, so much so that it was said of him, he was wiser than anyone before him or anyone who would come after him. So, so that's the standard, that's the, the bar, that's the superpower from God that Solomon is using now to be able to test wisdom and also test folly as we experience it in our days under the sun. And as we go through this, we're going to see three different discoveries that Solomon makes as he puts wisdom to the test. We're going to see a bitter discovery, a baffling discovery, and then finally, a bleak discovery. Those three things, bitter, baffling, and a bleak discovery. But given everything I said as we began this morning about our abilities, about all of a sudden feeling way out of our depth, way out of our league, when it comes to the wisdom of God, divine gift of wisdom, far more than a a rehearsal with a jazz choir, when we encounter the infinitely higher bar of God's wisdom, we're all going to find ourselves in a pond without shores, and that has no bottom. So if you close your Bibles... Would you open them up again with me back to Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Follow along with me as we go through this. And as we look at how Solomon now tests wisdom with wisdom. Before we get to the discoveries that Solomon makes, I just want to look at the test itself to understand what this wisdom experiment is. So we'll look first of all at the wisdom experiment. Look at the beginning of verse 23. Solomon says, Again, all this I tested by wisdom. Now again, just to be clear, Solomon is speaking of his divine gift of wisdom. I tested it with my divine gift of wisdom. That's the standard I'm using. That's the bar I'm using to measure with. And the claim that he's investigating here, we see immediately following, namely, the goal of a finite man or woman living out their days under the sun, stating 
I am determined to be wise. Determined to be wise. Which, if I can just reframe that for us, is basically what Solomon's saying here. To conduct this experiment, he's going to place himself in a scenario as though he didn't have this divine gift of wisdom. He's going to put himself in a scenario like that and just see, is it possible to attain to this divine level of wisdom just on my own, just with human will, to human determination and effort? Is that possible? <coughs> you can think of it like Superman trying to carry out an experiment to see if someone who didn't have his superpower could fly just by saying, I'm determined to fly. Is that possible? So if you look at verse 25 now, You'll see the way he sets up the experiment. Now, something quickly I need to mention to help us understand. <coughs> In verse 25 and verse 27, you'll see the word scheme there. Solomon talks about uh, to, to understand the scheme of things. It's important to know you'll see that word three times in our passage. The first two times don't mean what you normally think of when you hear the word scheme. In the Hebrew... This, those first two instances actually mean account or conclusion. It's only the last one, verse 29, that actually means what we normally think of in a kind of negative connotation of a scheme. So, now, let's read what he says. Verse 25. So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the conclusion of things, to understand the stupidity of wickedness, the madness of folly. It's almost as if Solomon is now... He swapped out the black floor-length leather jacket from last week when we had Morpheus from the Matrix here giving us his blue and red pill. Now he's taken that coat off. He's put on a white lab coat in order to carry out this experiment that he's trying to test wisdom to know whether it can be achieved, this divine level of wisdom. If you look at the beginning, or sorry, the end of verse 23 and then 24, you'll see his almost immediate conclusion. As soon as he starts the test, he's like, no. No, no, actually, it can't be done. No point in even moving on, actually. And maybe you'd say, well, maybe you should test it more. You know, give it some more tries. Maybe it does work. But come on, think about it. If this would be like Superman, testing whether or not, you know, someone could fly without the superpower and jumping off a high building, falling to the ground and slamming into the earth. Now, he survives because he's Superman. But is that a conclusion you really need to test a bunch of times to see whether it's true? Probably not, right? You get it the first time. Okay, somebody who doesn't have the ability to fly shouldn't jump off tall buildings. You can get that the first time you do that experiment. And you see at the beginning of verse 23, or the end of 23, he says, All this I tested by wisdom. I am determined to be wise, I said, but this was beyond me. It's beyond me. Look at verse 24. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? You see that? Whatever wisdom may be. It's almost like he's saying, when I try to discover God's wisdom from an earthly perspective, compared to a bar that's that high, I don't even know what I'm looking for anymore. I know it's called wisdom, but I'm not even sure what I'm looking for anymore when I compare it to this level of, of God's divine wisdom. And we'll get into this more as we look at the discoveries that Solomon makes from this failed experiment. Suffice it to say here, Solomon, his conclusion is almost identical to what the Apostle Paul states in his kind of doxological praise break in Romans chapter 11. He's going along, 
saying all this stuff, and he just kind of stops mid-passage and just says this, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, the past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord to be in his counsel? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. It means wisdom, the wisdom of God, it's something infinitely beautiful, infinitely majestic, something we could never achieve and attain on our own. It's not, it's not a bar we could ever reach by trying which is surely both a censure to anyone who might try to do it anyway, but also, think of it, it's a great comfort. It's a great comfort to those of us who recognize we're not wise and come to God to get it, come to God seeking wisdom, saying he's, he's got more than enough to spare, right? Think of it, even James, James 1.5, he told us, although, yeah, we can't attain to that bar on our own, he says, God willingly, generously gives to all who come and humble, believing submission, and ask. So yes, the bar is unreachable, and yet we know the source of wisdom to go to when we realize our need of wisdom. Now, anytime you carry out an experiment in order to prove a theory, whether you prove that theory or not, there's always something to learn. There's always some kind of takeaways from that experiment. Henry Ford once wisely noted, failure is only the opportunity to begin again, only this time more wisely. In the remainder of our passage, Solomon tells us that he too made certain discoveries, learned certain things that he had not intended to learn in this failed experiment. Now sometimes, uh, with things like penicillin, with things like the microwave oven, sometimes unintentional discoveries can have great benefits. Other times, like with Einstein's theory of relativity, atomic theory, sometimes unintentional discoveries maybe have more devastating results. Not that that was particularly unintentional. But it probably won't surprise you to hear that the discoveries that Solomon makes during his failed experiment, I mean, if you've been with us, you'll, you'll come to expect this. Now, his discoveries, yeah, they're a bit more depressing, a bit more negative than we might hope, and yet... There's some truly helpful, some truly positive things that we can learn from the discoveries he makes. And the first discovery Solomon makes, as we said, is a bitter discovery. He makes a bitter discovery. Look with me at verse 26. Solomon says this, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner... She will ensnare. Now, no question, as we read that, that sounds like the most random tangent ever. Because what? I mean, if this is a conversation, we're all going to be like, uh, hey, Solomon, hey, hey, sorry to interrupt you. Just, <laughs> weren't, we just weren't we talking about an experiment you did? Wisdom and folly, that whole thing. I mean, what you're saying here, that sounds super interesting. But could we just finish what we're talking about here first? Is that possible? But it might surprise you to hear Solomon say, actually, I I am talking about the same thing. I haven't switched the subject at all. Author Stephen Myers is helpful here. He says of this verse, In the wisdom literature of Solomon, there are always two women, the adulterous woman and the virtuous woman. Each stands for folly and wisdom, respectively. Here, the woman is 
folly, this deadly seductress, lures a man away from wisdom's embrace. If you turn with me to Proverbs 9, I'll read it for us if you don't want to turn there. Proverbs 9, we get a snapshot of what Myers is referring to there. Here, first of all, Solomon writes this. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, Come, eat my food and drink and the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through me, this is wisdom, through me your days will be many and the years will be added to your life. But then look, just one verse later, look what he says. Verse 13, the woman folly is loud. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house and on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to all who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are in there. That her guests are in the depths of the grave. Now, is Solomon drawing this teaching, this metaphor from personal experience? I think if you look at what the scriptures have to tell us about the wisest man ever in human history, about his reign as well as his eventual downfall, a man of whom it was said this, first king says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives by royal birth, 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as, his, as the heart of David his father had been. I think we'd be foolish. We'd be foolish to not see this painful lesson as drawn immediately from Solomon's life. He's totally drawing from personal experience. But, Lest we fool ourselves into saying, oh, okay, well, that's not my area of struggle. He was talking about sexual sin. Okay, that's not me. I don't struggle that way. So we need to remember that this is also a metaphor. And when we see Solomon talking this way, what he's doing, he's simply using the powerful draw of sexuality, of lust, to describe the power and the allure of foolishness to enslave any one of us. It's strong. It's powerful. He's saying that we should see the snare at the end of verse 26 as applying to every way in which we act in defiance of or without reference to God. It could be a snare to any of us. So yes, here, for Solomon, what he's describing here, it was the foolishness of pleasure, the foolishness of, of sexual gratification that ensnared him. That's the foolishness that called to him and drew him in. But, but don't stop there. Follow it through. 
What about for what about for us? What about for me? For me, I look at my own heart. I look into my own heart. I see the foolishness of pride, the foolishness of selfishness. At times, the foolishness of vengeance. At times, I find those to be powerfully alluring things, which I have to guard my heart from regularly. I would want to disavow you at every possible point of the idea that because I'm a pastor, somehow I'm not also prone to struggle and follow the path of foolishness. Absolutely I am. At times, pride, selfishness, getting back at someone who's injured me looks powerfully alluring, and I need to guard my heart against it. Or I'll listen to the call of foolishness. How do I do that? How do I guard my heart? Well, first of all, I think we need to admit, I need to admit that I find those foolish things alluring. Just be honest about it. Say, I find those things sometimes alluring. One of the ways to ensure your entrapment is to pretend somehow that you're immune to the siren call of foolishness. You're not. You're not. Second thing I try to do is just as Solomon says here, I try to seek to please God above all things. He says there, the man who pleases God will escape her. I try to please God and by His grace. I seek to please Him in all things and not please myself. It was the great reformer Martin Luther who said, If we were to but keep the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. We would be guiltless of the other nine. Seek to please God above all things. But that, okay, that's me. Confession, that's me. What about you? Think of your own life. Think of your own heart right now. Do you even know the foolish things that are alluring you? Have you even stopped to think about what they are? For most of us, it doesn't take too much thought to identify what they could be. Once you've done that, acknowledge. Just be honest about the fact. I still find those things alluring, even though I know they're foolish. And then daily seek by God's grace to live a life that pleases Him. Seeking daily, God, give me the grace to live a life that pleases you. Solomon says, if we'll do that, yes, foolishness is still going to call to you. It's still going to reach out for you, but we can escape being ensnared. Okay, so that's Solomon's bitter discovery. Let's look next at Solomon's discovery, which was a baffling discovery. A baffling discovery. Discovery. We see this in verse 27 and 28. Now, look with me there. Solomon writes this. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the conclusion of things. While I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Now, a few things I want to say quickly about that, and I want to say them quickly because I can see some ladies in here, they put down their Bibles and they're sitting here like this. I can see the look on your face like, hey, let's see what you're going to say about this, Pastor. You couldn't find one wise woman, eh? Oh, really? Bear with me. First of all, theologian Derek Kidner says this, Solomon is not dogmatizing, but reporting. This is one man's experience and he does not universalize it. We're just saying Solomon isn't making a comment on every man or woman who's ever lived. He's talking about, this is my experiment. I, I tested this group, and this is what I found. Secondly, when the Bible uses that number, 1,000, sometimes it literally means 1,000. Sometimes it's meant to be representative of just a large number of people. So 
So here, in this case, considering that Solomon we just read had 700 wives, 300 concubines, equals 1,000, it's likely he could literally be referring to, I tested 1,000 men and 1,000 women, and this is what I came up with. Finally, the thing to see is those little square brackets underneath the word upright. Look again at verse 27. Sorry, 28. Upright. You see those small little black brackets underneath? What that is, is how the New International Version and other translations of the Bible, they signal this word does not exist in the original Hebrew. We've inserted this word here in order to help make sense of what we think this verse is saying. We think this verse is talking about this, so we put the word upright in, and we're putting these brackets here to say that's not in the original text, actually. This is inserted in to help you understand what we believe. But actually, upright is not in the original Hebrew. So what that means is, again, now this text, what it reads is, while I was searching but not finding, I found one man among a thousand, but not one woman among them all. Now my question for you is this. Given all that we've been looking at here thus far, who is the person? More specifically, what kind of person is it that Solomon has been searching for this whole time? Who's he looking for? Clearly, the, the translators in the New International Version, they, they thought upright is the kind of person he's looking for. I mean, we see that in the next verse. But Solomon's saying God made mankind upright, and there's other places talking about that. But has Solomon been investigating and searching for a morally pure person, a righteous person this whole time? In verse 20, which we read earlier, he just finished saying that uh, uh, there are no righteous people. There's nobody who doesn't sin. So maybe it isn't that. I, I wonder if it isn't rather thinking of the fact that this whole time Solomon has been searching for the one who can truly be wise, the one who can attain to God's standard of wisdom through their own human will, their own human efforts. If we understand it this way, what Solomon is saying is that after searching and investigating 2,000 people, he found only one person that met that description, only one person who, who had the mind of God and could understand godly wisdom. And you know who it was? It was the guy he saw every morning in the mirror when he was shaving. It was him. He's the person that he found out of a thousand men. It wasn't anybody else. And the only reason he had that is because it was this divine gift from God. That's the only reason he found anybody who could even attain to that bar of wisdom. Because who else could we say would have wisdom that could match that who could be wiser than any man or woman in history? No one. There's nobody. He's referring to himself. Now, you can tell me after. I don't know if that gets Solomon off the hook or not. Even if it does in this instance, there's no question. As wise as he may have been, Solomon also displayed, and what we just read back there in 1 Kings, he also displayed a use and abuse of, of women in his lifetime that is contrary both to the dignity and honor that women have as co-image bearers of God and also is, is dishonoring to the covenant of marriage, which God designed to be between one man and woman. It's also important to say we need to be careful to distinguish between what the Bible uh, describes and reports and what it recommends. They're not the same thing. If you look at the ultimate results of Solomon's entrapment and of the foolishness and sexual gratification, uh, collecting human beings as trophies, I think it's pretty clear what kind of recommendation the Bible gives for Solomon's behavior here, and I think it's, it's not a good one. 
And while Solomon may be baffled at his inability to find even one person who's even close to displaying godlike wisdom out of 2,000, we might look at some of these uglier parts of Solomon's life and be baffled that he would even be described as the wisest person ever at all. The simple takeaway is this. Solomon, he truly was. The Bible's not wrong. He did have this divine gift of wisdom. Solomon truly was the wisest man who ever lived, but he was also a sinner, not a savior. He was a sinner, not a savior. There was only one person who ever walked this earth and was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and that was Jesus. He he is our savior. Solomon was simply a man in history who, for all his wisdom and promise, could only point us ahead to the need of a rescuer. And that need is seen most profoundly in the last discovery Solomon makes. A bleak discovery. A bleak discovery. Look with me at verse 29 now. Solomon says, This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Now, first thing again, just to remind us, in this verse here, schemes does mean what we often think of. It does have that negative connotation, this sort of elaborate, systematic plan of action that's often uh, to trick or deceive someone, which sadly only makes Solomon's discovery here even more bleak. When you place mankind's search for foolishness in the context of how Solomon says God made us, you see, he says, no, I didn't find what I was searching for initially, but here's something I absolutely found. I found that God created us. He made us for one thing, but we have all gone in search of something else. That's the final discovery he made. He made us for one thing, and we've gone in search of something else. Interestingly, almost every commentator that I read as I studied this passage said that one verse is a summary of the entire first three chapters of the book of Genesis which if you didn't know, is this sort of archetypal story of what's wrong with the world. There we read about how God made the world and everything in it, how he made it good and perfect, including us, that we had a perfect, unhindered relationship with God. He walked with us in the garden. Solomon says, verse 29, he made us upright. He made us perfect and without sin. But as it relates to everything Solomon has just said about wisdom, God's design for us to know it and live according to it, In Genesis 3, we read these bleak and devastating words. Listen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. Serpent said to the woman, For God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is undoubtedly what Solomon is referring to in verse 29, which is also a summary of the human condition from every moment after that until today, every moment since Adam till today. 
New Testament, Jesus reiterates almost this exact same acting contrary to our design. John 3.19 says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says it this way, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and foolish. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. I mean, it's so clearly in front of us. I mean, this hardly needs illustration, does it? Don't we see this everywhere we turn? Isn't this the very air we breathe right now? Since that first pair chose against their design, chose foolishness over living according to God's wisdom and sought to find their own way instead, isn't this the pervasive congenital condition of us all? Never mind Solomon's 2,000 people. Paul, quoting Isaiah earlier in Romans 3, couldn't be more descriptive that this describes the entirety of the human race when he said there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. Why do we do that? Why do we turn away? I believe because each and every one of us have listened to that same siren call of foolishness that entrapped Eve in the garden and then her husband, namely, believing that there is another way to life. There's another way to fulfillment. There's another way to satisfaction apart from God. That's the call of foolishness that we believed. And we follow down that path. And we might never say it out loud, but we need to acknowledge that to one degree or another, we believe we're wiser than God. We think we know better what will lead us to life than He does. That's why we turn away. That's why we choose our own path. We think we know better. I haven't yet found someone who describes this foolish choice much better than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Silver Chair, from the Chronicles of Narnia series. In these books, there's a central character throughout named Aslan. He's this great lion who is meant to represent Jesus throughout the stories. And in this particular scene, there's this girl named Jill Pohl. She becomes separated from her friend in the woods, and she's eventually tired and hot, Dying of thirst, she's just desperate to find some relief, and she comes across a stream, a freshwater stream. The only problem is, lying right beside this stream is this lion, Aslan, and he's lying between her and the water. Listen to Lewis's description here. If you're thirsty, come and drink. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? Oh, I'm, I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked a whole mountain to move for her convenience. 
The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, uh, to do anything to me if I come, she said. I make no promise. Joe was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come another step nearer. Do you eat girls, she asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings, emperors, cities, and realms, said the lion. Didn't say this as though it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I daren't come drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. I think Lewis is right, isn't he? We absolutely do. We go in search of other streams, schemes, as Solomon calls them here. We all seek them out. We just do anything, anything but bow the knee, submit ourselves to an infinitely wise creator who loves us and calls us to come and drink. Why do we refuse? I think at times it could be out of fear, like with Jill here, we're afraid. Other times I think we refuse because of offense. How dare you tell me what I, I need, what's the right way. I, I know what's best for me. I don't care if you are God. I, I know what's best for me. But in either case, in the presence of God's infinite wisdom, I think we see our own wisdom. However great, however celebrated it might be here, we see it for what it truly is when it's compared to the bar of his wisdom. And we just, we're just too humiliated or offended by the exposure to bear. And so we just refuse. We turn away. We say, no, I, I guess I'm going to have to find another stream then. I was saddened to see a demonstration of this very refusal just this past week as I watched a film called The Theory of Everything. I don't know if you've seen this. It's a film about the brilliant theoretical physicist, cosmologist Stephen Hawking. Died just this past March. Staggering intellect. A man who was diagnosed at 21 years of age with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a motor neuron disease that, that ravaged everything in Stephen's body except his mind perfectly functioning mind, even as his physical body caved in on itself. And yet, to his very last day, he calmly and rationally refused any notion of a God who made him or anything else. The scheme of his choice? Mathematics. Math. That will eventually explain everything. Or so he thought. In the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through him, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what he preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. The Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Christ crucified. Exposed, humiliated, and offended as well, but all for our redemption. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There is no other stream than him. There is nowhere else we can find that water to drink and truly live. Why? Because God designed it that way. He made it that way. St. Augustine said it this way, reflecting on this very verse of 29 in our passage. He said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. May we find that rest. May we seek it and find it in him today.